You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. Uh, I'm here with just one co-host today, Evan Ratliff. Hey, Max. Hey, man. We're missing one. We are. We're a man down. He's, he's got a bad back, and it's gone out on him again. Yeah, That's he what's is, happened. He is literally down. He's down on the floor right now in his apartment uh, because he cannot stand up. Send him some well wishes, listeners, if you... Uh... Yeah, at Aaron Lammer on Twitter, Aaron at longform.org. Uh, the man is in some pain. We're hoping that he's going to be back. Very soon, and it's uh, it's a shame that he's not here because this is actually uh, his interview. So, Max, uh, who did Aaron speak to this week? Uh, this week, Aaron spoke to Anne Helen Peterson of BuzzFeed. Uh, Anne Helen Peterson writes all kinds of great bu- stuff for BuzzFeed. She wrote this piece, this big piece on TMZ, like uh, right before oh, yeah, all the was Ray Rice stuff. Piece. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but before she was at BuzzFeed, she was working on these great pieces about scandals of classic Hollywood. Uh, she wrote them for the Hairpin, and those and some other stuff have been collected into a book also called Scandals of Classic Hollywood, and it is out this week. This book this book looks looks really fun to Evan, read. Evan is, <laughs> Evan is holding <laughs> it like in his hands right now. a story about Fatty Arbuckle's descent from Hollywood royalty fu- fueled by allegations of a boozy orgy turned violent assault. It's like full of these kind of stories. Come on, it's buy fantastic. that book. Boozy yeah. orgy, come on. Um, one, uh, one note for the chronology sticklers out there. Aaron and uh, Annie spoke a couple weeks ago, uh, and they're talking about this book as though it's going to come out in the future, but we are now, the future is here. The book is out. The moment has arrived. You can go purchase the book right now. Go get it. Sponsors? Oh, we got them. Oh, we got them. Uh, here's one thing you could do, Evan. You're a fashionable man, man mm-hmm. of style, mm-hmm. man of taste. Uh, have you gone to bonobos.com? Not today. Not today. It is bonobos.com, B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com. I really like saying that. Uh, if you use the code LONGFORM, you can buy some of their fantastic men's clothing for 20% off. Our other sponsor this week, one of our other sponsors this week, uh, is one of Aaron's very favorite sponsors. It's Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. And uh, as Aaron is fond of telling me, even not on the podcast at all, just incidentally. Just walking around the office. If you want to tell a group of people about something, you should do it with an email newsletter. There's a lot of great email newsletters floating around out there, including by people who have been on this podcast. And all of them are made with Tiny Letter. So check it out. It's from MailChimp. Uh, one more sponsor, a stalwart sponsor, another uh, consistent sponsor on the show, EA Sports, our favorite video game, FIFA. They've got a new version out. It's EA Sports FIFA 15, and uh, we've been doing this contest uh, to, to find our listeners and our readers' favorite soccer articles. The results are up, Evan. Who is the winner? Who, what is the best soccer article? You're going to be happy to know this. is a Howler article. Yeah. Yeah. I know which article you're talking about. Yeah, uh, it's great. You should go. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It's up on longform.org. Uh, some great articles, and EA Sports was kind enough to give away an Xbox as well. That's fantastic. Also, this article is it's about the time a fan was enlisted to play for an English soccer team. I don't know. I, I'll be honest. I had not read it before. Uh, many, 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 many people voted for it. It's amazing. Here's Aaron with Anne Helen Peterson. Welcome, Anne Helen Peterson. Hi. Hey. I think the first writing of yours that I became aware of was the Hollywood Scandals mm. series you did for yeah. it's Hairpin, right? The Hairpin. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I should I know a little bit about your background. Maybe we can reverse engineer it. So, 
at, at what point in your life and career did you start just writing stuff for the web? I So I was getting my PhD in media studies in Austin, Texas. And it was the summer between my second and third year, and I was studying for my comprehensive exams, which meant that every day I just picked a book and read that book. Yes. For like in one day. And then like obsessively took note cards and then like put the note cards all over my my room. Like it was very something out of Do you think that this kind of behavior is influenced by like cult? Cult behavior. I mean, oh my gosh. it's not like no, it's no, not no. a logical way. No, it to was test. an amazing way. It was the most gratifying experience of my entire scholastic yeah. career. Because it's training you for a skill that literally has no application. Oh, except like for writing, writing for the internet. Yeah, except, it's true. Except for writing the internet. So you were doing this. At which point you were like, I actually could get rich because I could write like fifty <laughs> posts in a single day. I had no idea. But that's not why I started writing for the Internet. The, yeah. the moral of the story is that it's a very isolating experience to be reading a book every day by yourself. Yes. And so I wanted some way to attach what I was reading in these books, which most they were all like history of Hollywood, history of stardom, history of television, this sort of thing. OK, so how do these things relate to the things that I'm thinking about and what I want to write my dissertation about, which mm-hmm. was the history of the gossip industry? So... I came up with a WordPress blog that was called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style because that is, I guess, what I do. Yeah. And so I started writing on this, and I had like joined Twitter, I don't know, like six months before. I had like 200 followers. So like I'd write a post, and I'd get like 200 hits. I'd be like, this is awesome. Yeah. But this was also the heyday, heyday, in quotes, of academic blogging. So lots of other people had blogs, and people would write comments, like lengthy comments, and you'd get in conversation. But it taught me how to make the ideas that I was reading into things that were accessible, not just to my academic friends, but to, like, whoever else on Facebook would click on that link that I shared. Where did where did this interest in the history of Hollywood start for you? Uh, if anyone has read my piece on Entertainment Weekly that's in the all, then they know my dirty <laughs> secret, which is that I was obsessed with Entertainment Weekly from, like, the very first issue. And I obsessively cataloged it. Like, I made a database on my Apple TV where I put in, like, the title of the magazine and the number and whether it was a little E or a big E on the cover and the different topics. And then I gave it a grade. Whoa. Like, you know, in Entertainment Weekly, they give everything a grade. So I'd be like... Oscars issue, A minus. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I learned how to track, to be uh, obsessively track Hollywood industry, even yeah. though I, you know, I grew up in a very small town in northern Idaho. Like, I had no idea. What was your relationship to, like, Hollywood and that, that world? Well, I mean, when you were grading these magazines, what were you thinking? How were you thinking that you related to them, I guess? You know, and I wasn't a wonk, or I was a wonk, but I didn't, I was never a cinephile. A lot of people who are in cinema studies like grew up watching old movies with their parents or like yeah. their dad loved to watch John Wayne movies like at least they got an experience of that like that was not me at all I mean the movies that we watched in my house were Rad which is a BMX movie uh, Ski Patrol which is a Ski Patrol movie <laughs> it's and like Rad on skis <laughs> and then like the Star Wars trilogy just yeah. like, on repeat and big uh, but what Entertainment Weekly taught me was, like, the entire landscape of the industry. And as, you know, any type A, nerdy, bored 11-year-old knows, like, you can apply that to anything. Like, whether that's video games or pol- – I mean, some kids are really into weird politics. I was, yeah. I was really into the Iraq War, like, the first Iraq War. Like, I put, cut all these clippings and stuff. Um, what, what grade did you give it? I think I, <laughs> the, the Iraq War was, like, fourth grade. And that was right about the time of the Entertainment Weekly obsession, too. Yeah. But so I knew like everything about like sex lies videotape, which I I didn't watch until I was 19 years old. But I knew all about like the Weinstein's and what was going on at Sundance and that sort of thing. Did you have ambitions to turn this into like a like intellectual like career pursuit at that point or no? Uh, no. What what took you what took you from from here to there? <laughs> my mom's a mathematician. My dad's a doctor. Like I was. I really I was a huge mathlete, so I thought I was going to be a math major in college. And then the first semester, this is so cliche, but like the first semester I was in like Calc 4, so bad. Um, and I also got kind of like accidentally into a film class, a Westerns class. I had no interest in it. But like the way that thinking that I could actually study cinema as like an aesthetic pursuit really 
opened up for me. And so that first semester, I was like, here's something that gives me a lot of pain and that I don't like anymore. And here's this new thing that I'm really good at. So yeah. maybe I should think about that some more. When you write something for the all, yeah. your stakes are, are – or the hairpin, rather. Um, the stakes are generally to, to entertain a reader on yeah. some level, yeah. at a basic level. When you when you're turning turning in a, a 400 page dissertation, what 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 are the stakes of that kind of writing for that's, you? That's a really good question. I mean, the stakes were not to entertain. I was always getting kind of in trouble, for lack of a better word, for uh, writing too journalistically. Ah, uh, interesting. Whereas you know the the typical or established and, and valorized way that you're supposed to write academic writing is more like an interrogation, but not like a sexy interrogation, right. more like a passive voice interrogation of what's going on. I generally hate academic writing, but I haven't quite figured, like, I, I always want to ask people, like, what, like, what did you think you were doing yeah. when you wrote this yeah, way? Yeah. And what, like, what the person who's like, Hey, tone down the fun in this one. Like it's a little bit like it's a little bit too coherent as a narrative. What what are what are they saying is lost there, and and what is it that they they want that that's not that? I think that seriousness, like actually taking a step back and yeah. analyzing. Okay, so what is this story, and what's at stake in telling this story is one of those things, which I think is good. Yeah, and one of the things that was really invaluable, one of the pieces of advice that was really invaluable to me was. I was getting a lot of the information on, you know, like, the history of what was going on in People magazine and that sort of thing. I was getting it from the trades, especially so, like, there's this whole chapter in my dissertation that's about, like, the celebrity death match of the early 2000s. I really enjoyed that one. Between <laughs> Us Weekly and People magazine. It is so fascinating, and, and I really want to write about it more. But uh, the thing is, is that this was all being covered not only in, like, Variety and Hollywood Reporter, like, the Hollywood trades, but also in the magazine trades, so places like Folio and Ad Age and Ad Week and Brand Week and all these different places. And they absolutely had something at stake in inflating the sense that this was a Hollywood, like, that these two magazines, that there actually was a story here. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. And so, like, to... To take a step back and be like, instead of, oh, okay, so this is what was going on, to be like, so here was, you know, this way I'm getting all of this information is actually mediated through these sources, which are themselves, they, those sources themselves have a stake in it. They're players in the yeah, drama. Totally. When you take something like classic Hollywood, less so when we're talking about like Entertainment Weekly or TMZ, when you take like classic Hollywood yeah. uh, as a topic, this has to be a topic that, like, we could, like, fill your apart Brooklyn apartment up with books about it that have already been written. It's, like, all the way filled up with those books. Yes. Right now. So, yeah. <laughs> all the books that you're someday going to sell on Amazon right. are filling your apartment. And you, and you got 800 books there. How do you, like, how do you sort of carve out what's new among yeah. that? And, like, your mentor has this, this argument about the studio system, which right. is basically that they're sort of creativity within limitations mm -hmm. to paraphrase my yeah. very brief memory yeah, of that yeah. can you not then write a dissertation that makes the same argument i mean no, do you, you have can't. to come up with a completely new idea well, that's why like the very beginning of any dissertation is the super long and super boring lit review because yeah. it's like here's all the arguments that i can't steal like right. i have to acknowledge and stand on the show yeah it's sort of like a disclosure people. like yeah. like disclosure it, like almost everything in this has already been covered but like <laughs> deep in it there may be one new thing well, it, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 to be honest, the hit, like people writing scholastic, academic, engaged histories of Hollywood is actually pretty relatively new. Uh, like, how old is media studies? Like the sixties? Film studies is from like really like early seventies, and it's oh, an offshoot okay. of English. But then you have like McLuhan and communications and that sort of thing. Is that's kind of like a different realm? Yeah. And that's why like media studies even now you have the kind of the more traditional film studies, and then you have. Cultural studies, which is developing in the 70s, which is like, oh, let's look at popular stuff instead of just like Swedish art cinema. Right. And that's where, to some extent, some of my stuff fits in because I'm like, let's talk about celebrities as images and as things that people consume. And also like the study of television is in there. And then you have more of like the calm studies branch of it as well. I mean, it's super multidisciplinary, which is part of what's attractive about it. What point did ideas from your like dissertation start bleeding into writing that you were doing outside of your dissertation? 
I mean, everything that I was doing was all gossip, like was all celebrity and gossip related. So it was all this like cluster of everything was similar. And so no matter what I was writing, I mean, like Scandals of Classic Hollywood, the first one that I wrote for the hairpin, I wrote the week after I turned in my dissertation and I was like, I'm so sick of writing in this tone. I just want to write like with a lot of exclamation marks. Right. And at this time, you know, this is pretty soon after the hairpin started. I think it was like three or four, four months old. And this is when Edith Zimmerman was the editor. And like there's a very. Check out her long form podcast. <laughs> there's a very like Edith style that's yeah. still to some extent the house style of the hairpin. But I was just in love with it and had like read it all through like the dog days of my dissertation. And I had never submitted anything anywhere. Yeah. I wrote like 2,000 words about Ingrid Bergman because that's a story I like, know backwards and forwards mm-hmm. in that style. And I was so nervous and I sent it to Edith and I was like, maybe this. <laughs> She's like, I love it. It's going up tomorrow. And it, I think it got like 30 comments and I thought it was the best thing in the universe. <laughs> Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. The first sponsor is Bonobos. Uh, This is a true story. Here's a true story. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Bonobos was a sponsor on the podcast for the first time. And uh, shortly thereafter, I got a call from my mother. And my mom uh, likes to buy me clothes sometimes. And she said, have you heard of this company, Bonobos? And I said, I have. They, in fact, sponsored the podcast. And she doesn't listen to the podcast because she doesn't care. But... Uh, she was excited about Bonobos and she said, I want to buy you some clothes. These clothes look great from Bonobos. And I said, you should use the code Longform at checkout and you'll get 20% off. Uh, and she did that. And I now have Bonobos clothing, uh, thanks to my mother because she takes care of me. Uh, she doesn't listen to the podcast, but she does take care of me. Anyway, Bonobos. They make everything from perfect fitting chinos, denim and shirts to world class hats and outerwear options. Uh, go to Bonobos today. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. And you, like my mother, can use the code LONGFORM at checkout and you'll get 20% off. Uh, thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show and for these clothes. Thanks also to my mother. Uh, and thanks to EA Sports, our second sponsor this week. Uh, EA Sports, uh, always supportive of the podcast. Uh, they just gave away an Xbox and a free copy of EA Sports FIFA 15 to one of the entrants to our contests. But they didn't want everyone to feel empty-handed, uh, so they're going to give away 10 more copies of the game. That's 10 copies, uh, either PlayStation or Xbox, of FIFA 15. Uh, all you got to do is send us an email, editors at longform.org, put FIFA 15 in the subject line, and uh, we will send you a game, a free copy of EA Sports FIFA 15. Uh, thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Aaron and Anne Helen Peterson. What were, I mean, what were the challenges of trying to um, go from, like, dissertation to exclamation mark in in your writing? I mean, that came naturally. I think it was, like, because I had been blogging this whole entire time. Like, I had read a blog post probably every, like, twice, three times a week. So that, I still had, like, that muscle had an atrophied. You know how when you read something, you read it, like, you read it all the time that you just incorporate that style. Like I always tell, I used to tell students that like the way to learn how to use a semicolon is just to read like a lot of Henry James. Absolutely. And so I had been reading so much of the hairpin that it was very natural to like. To write in that yeah, style. Yeah. And it's also like kind of this um, like Corey style as well of like the enthusiasm that's not ironic. It's actual enthusiasm. And I was really excited about Ingrid Bergman and this crazy scandal. Yeah. And so it came really naturally. The one hesitation, and I still have this all the time, is that the story is really nuanced of like why things happened the way that they did. And, you know, people have written a lot about it and I have thought a lot about it. And if you're trying to say all of that in 2000 words... And especially if any other like celebrity studies scholars read it, they would be like, well, what about this? And what about this? And I'd right. be like, I wanted to say all those things. <laughs> right. But word count. Well, I mean, it was interesting. Like when when I picked up your book, you've got a book that's coming out? Yeah, September 30th. September 30th. Book is Scandals of Classic Hollywood. Scandals of Classic Hollywood. Scandals. All new content. The part that was interesting for me in reading the book as opposed to them is – when you read these stories of, of these stars, sort of generally misfortunes, almost 
Almost no one likes something awesome to happen. The to. only people who have awesome things happen to them are like straight white skinny males. Yes. <laughs> Glad that you put the the skinny on there because now I. Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so the the impression I got when I read the book, as opposed to like the two thousand word slivers, yeah. is you start to see a pattern among yeah. the behavior, which is. Both that the gossip and um, publicity racket is shaping America's opinion of these stars, but also just generally destroying them in the yeah. process, or yeah, at yeah. least putting them down a path where they are likely to destroy themselves. Yeah. Um, you sort of you start to see them not as people, but start to see this as like a sort of a, a history of of both American perception and like a class of people because Hollywood really was like a, a colony as you write about yeah. in it. What When you started taking these pieces that you had done from the web and thinking about putting them into a book, what were the major components that, that separated the book from the, from the pieces in your mind? I mean, the great thing about having spent so much time and money on graduate education is that I think of the history of Hollywood stardom as a, as a system. Mm-hmm. And so as something like... I see all of those valleys and peaks and like my the dissertation is like about the last hundred years of Hollywood gossip. So the context is all there and I know where they lie. Each of those stars that each of them is a chapter. Like I know where in that system they are and what's going on. Yeah. So before any of that happened, like that it was very clear to me like, okay, so these three stars are going to be in like early, early silent Hollywood when, like, things are really, really fraught. And, like, these stars are going to be in classic Hollywood when everything's covered up. And, like, these stars are going to be transitional stars when, like, everything's going to hell in the 1950s. So, like, that was, that was, like, that was so easy to map. And I think that in part because, like, the way that I just happened to write the scandals for the hairpin, it kind of goes all over. Like, the first one's Edward Bergman, and I do, like, I think it's Mitchum next. But then I, like, sometimes I'll go way back to, like, Theta Barra in, like, the teens. And then I'll do one on, like, Robert Redford, who's not really a classic Hollywood star, but mostly I just wanted to, like, put pictures of him. (laughs) So one thing I was thinking about while I was reading the book was, like, you've got sort of two dogs nipping at your heels. One dog is the, like, dog of, like academic like media studies like i already i already said that like yeah, that, yeah. that idea was there and then the other dog is like the wikipedia dog <laughs> which is like these stories are are well known like you could get a lot of that fatty arbuckle story but on... it's wrong well and that's what i was <laughs> that's what i want to ask you about so there's so much misinformation yeah. about there and there's so much like these are people who have already been widely biographied right um like how do you how do you like how do you separate all of that out and like say this is like how I'm going to describe Fatty Arbuckle's life like yeah. what are the trusted sources when you're when you're doing something like this Yeah I mean each star not every star but many of them have had like a really good academic article if not book published on them so part of what I'm doing is standing on their shoulders in that way but a lot of those are also like the the really good one about Fatty Arbuckle contextualizes his story with the Black Sox scandal. I'm not making that same argument. Like, right. I'm going to say some of the same things about what the, the attitude towards kind of censorship and uh, regulation and the, the way that people were talking about fatness and abundance and that sort of thing in, like, early 20s Hollywood. But that's only part of what's informing what I'm doing. Because really what I'm excavating isn't, okay, who was Freddie Arbuckle and, like, or what actually happened in that hotel room. In San Francisco. Yeah. I, I mean, that, like, for the purposes of my book, it does not matter. Because what d- does matter is the way that these scandals were mediated. And so that is what I can excavate really thoroughly. In part because just over, like, this this book took me a summer to write. It would have taken me, like, five years to write even five years ago. Because what happened is that so many of the fan magazines have been digitized and PDF searchable now. So, like, I have all of them. People who got their PhD like 20 years ago must hate you. Oh, my gosh. Well, I hate myself now because even when I was doing my dissertation, no fan magazines. I had to, like, sit in the basement of the University of Texas base, like, like with the microfiche machine oh, yeah. just, like, killing my eyes. And then I spent so much money on fan magazines that you can't get a hold of because no one, like, historically – this is a whole other podcast – but historically uh, – 
the fan magazine has been thought of as trashy, and so no magazines kept it. So there's only, like, five magazines that have, like, a full run of Photoplay, which is, like, the most bourgeois and people magazine type magazine. And all the rest are, like, in people's basements. Like, you have to buy them on eBay, like, get them at estate sales, that sort of thing. But it's so rich. Like, the way that people talk about these stars in, in their scandals is just, like, that is the font of information on how things happened. I would say that the, the theme if there is one of the book is this, is repression of a sort and, oh, and yeah. a sanitization um coming from a small uh conservative town i yeah. mean is that do you compare your experiences growing up to that sort of sanitized world is that like is that a connection for you that's so good i've never thought of that <laughs> i mean i grew up i grew up really presbyterian um like i was full jesus for a, for a long time um, but also, my parents were intellectuals, so trying to reconcile, like, the way that my parents understood Christianity and the way that, like, the church and youth group and, like, things like ideologies like true love waits and that sort of thing, how that reconciled with my intellectual understanding of, like, how sex works and, like, feminism and that sort of thing. I mean, it all exploded as soon as I got to college, which makes sense, but... I feel like you could just take that as the uh, as a quote about anything. It all, it all exploded when I went to got got to college. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that like I mean, looking back, I see that like the repression of all of high school activities, like eventually, that leads to sadness and despair and like you know people not living up to the expectations that they set for themselves and that sort of thing. Well, the the thing I that I took from the book was that. The whitewashing that yeah. that that has go, that goes on, everyone kind of passes the buck. No one's like, I'm the conservative one who wants America to be sexless. Like right. the report, the people who work for the tabloids are like, well, we're just giving people what they want. They want a sanitized version of these stars, and the right. censors are like, we're just doing this for the theater owners, or you know, like we're doing or for this. The Catholics, yeah, the the audience wants the it. Every everyone is sort of saying someone else wants this. Right. I'm simply the uh, vessel. For the right. will of the people. Um, Which actually is complicated because they would say that, but then what would happen, like the the censorship that was going on in the 20s, is that like the bishops would say like, I my parishioners don't want to see this like scandalous material. But then the bishops would have to show up like at the theater to make sure the, the parishioners didn't actually oh, go right. and <laughs> see the scandalous material. And there were, you know, one of the great things about having access to these newspapers is you could, like they would reprint the sermons. Yeah. So like pastors were denouncing Fatty Arbuckle in the pulpit. So there were some people who were like owning it. There was okay. So some there there were some it. people who get into it. Yeah, and, like Ingrid Bergman was denounced on the Senate floor. Right. As an instrument of evil. Like that senator, he was owning it. That yeah. she was horrible. So, I mean, when you're dealing with like an industry like gossip that's mm -hmm. literally uh, only exists to obfuscate the truth. Yeah. Um, do you have tools for sort of detecting truth? I don't know truth if it only exists to obfuscate <laughs> the truth. I okay. was like, I was like doing the polite no, and I was like, no, 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 no. no. Okay, <laughs> doesn't only uh, only exist to obfuscate the truth, but by by definition, must in some ways be obfuscating the truth, or it would simply be journalism. No, because I think sometimes gossip is trying to illuminate the truth. Right. Because if you're gossiping about like someone, this person is gay, right? Is closeted. Right. You're trying to illuminate what has been obfuscated by the publicity apparatus. Right. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But, but a lot of times it is. But like, you know, it's yeah. like you know, you're getting like a like a, a mixed bag. Yeah. Like some of some of them are jalapenos. Some of them have the super spicy sauce. In them. Right, right. You know, they're not. You know they're not all super spicy right, sauces. Right. And, and, well, or like something like a blind item, which yes. is my favorite kind of gossip because uh, – like the reason I like gossip is because it's like a puzzle. Yeah. I, like I don't actually care again if like this is true. It's more like me thinking about like who is this, who is this talking about? Yeah. And so a blind item, they are clearly obfuscating who – the subject of the blind item is they're giving you like little hints and that sort of thing. But yeah. that's that's the titillation is the obfuscation. When you look at like a blind item yeah. from 1930, are you able to reconstruct sort of how the sausage gets made there? Like who reports the tip and how they publish? Like I know you've written like about TMZ right. recently and it's like 
I wouldn't say it's like totally transparent, but you you have a pretty good idea of how TMZ operates. Like yeah. they have like tipsters. freelancers and tipsters, and there's guys with cameras at the yeah. airport. Like yeah, yeah. you can kind of see how they they put together the show. Like, are you able to get that detailed with with classic era gossip? Well, you know, like a blind item in 1930 isn't a blind item the way that we think of it today. Like my favorite contemporary gossip site is called Laney Gossip. It's this Canadian woman who does Laney like, Gossip. Laney Gossip. But she does like analysis. Like she is kind of I mean she's not an academic, but it's more like smart gossip. So she every once in a while will just like post a blind item. There'd be like alliteration and you know like and people, there's a Facebook page where everyone goes and, like, immediately guesses it and that sort of thing. But in the 1930s, what would happen is, like, there would be, in a fan magazine, there would be several columnists. And they would have kind of bone mows and paragraphs where they would talk about things. Or, like, Walter Winchell would do the same thing in his, like, daily um, column. And it would be more like the way that they would do phrasing. And so the gossip column, they knew everything that was going on. They knew everything. And part of it was that the other stars like reported on one another to keep in those gossip columnists good graces. And they were moralizers. And so they would like tip their hat that they knew something oftentimes in a gossip like in a column. Yeah. Or, you know, the the my favorite would be like in the nineteen fifties, this guy Mike Connolly, who was the gossip columnist for the Hollywood Reporter and was gay, he would like when someone who was gay was out with uh, kind of a sham girlfriend, he would put, like, female name of the person this person was on a date with and Montgomery Clift, and then an ampersand, and then, like, the name of the person that he was actually, that he's dating, like, actually with, and then the name of that person's beard. So if you were, like, if you were in the know, then you would know that there's, like, the two men with the ampersand in between, that the, that's the actual couple. But, like, if you were just reading the paper... Yeah. Then you would never know. Your bio in the back of uh, the galley of your book says that um, you are a uh, you you work at a university and live in Walla Walla. I mean, I used to. <laughs> so you're here now, and you don't look like you have any bags. So what has happened like since any suitcases? No suitcases. You do have a bag. You don't have a suitcase. <laughs> so what has happened in your life since the that bio was written uh, that has you I'm living depressed. in New York? Uh, I didn't get a job. So I and that's like not news. Like you can read all about it on the internet. You did not get a job. I did not get a job. Oh, I thought you were going to say you got a job. No, here. I did not okay. get a job in academia. So mm. I was on what's called a visiting assistant professorship, yeah. which, like, it doesn't mean that I was like invited special guest. <laughs> it, visiting in academia means like uh, pinch hitter. Yeah. Um, so when someone goes on sabbatical or when they're going to like make a tenure track hire, they'll hire a visiting. And so I was on, like, a two-year visiting professorship and uh, was interviewing for the job at Whitman College, which is also my alma mater. And I'm obsessed with, like, Walla Walla, which is this tiny town in Washington State. And But I didn't get the job. They gave it to someone who's very qualified, who I know from University of Texas. Um, but I was on the job market. You know, yeah. I had not only applied for that job, but I applied for 50 other jobs. Right. And it just so happened that, like, on one of these uh, – job interviews that I uh, was contacted by Summer, Summer Ann Burton, who uh, I knew vaguely from Austin and whose work I had followed for a long time. And she's like, why don't you write something on Jennifer Lawrence for BuzzFeed? And so I started working on that. And then that hit at the, it was like the day before the Oscars. And the piece is about like the history of cool girls. It's very like what I do, which is like, let's take a contemporary celebrity and then let's add some context about things that have happened in the past. And it went crazy. Like, I I think I kind of understood at the time how crazy it went. But what, what is going crazy? Mean it, for uh, it, uh, 1.3 million views for a long form is like a 7,000 yeah. word piece. That's more than more reading than happens in some states. <laughs> and I mean, part of it is that BuzzFeed is just a megaphone. Like, that's the yep. metaphor that people use to describe. Just, like, you, you have so many people who just, like, open the app when they're bored or yep. go to the homepage and whatever's there. And Jennifer Lawrence is, like, so eminently clickable. But the stats on it are actually surprising. Like, the number of people who read actually all the way through it yeah. is oh, yeah. very high. And so that 
changed the landscape for me and opened up possibilities that I didn't think were possible. But in the meantime, like while I was, I didn't think I was going to get an academic job. Like I'm just the things I study are really offensive to a lot of traditional departments. Like they think it's too silly to study gossip mm-hmm. and not legitimate. Really? Oh yeah. I thought like studying like low culture was kind of in now. It depends. So a lot of like at like liberal arts colleges where they have one person teaching film studies it's, yeah. like, in the English department. The 60-year-olds in the English department don't think that what I'm studying is cool. Right. <laughs> um, like, you know, at a huge university, maybe. Right. But, like, that position, you know, there's a 100 other people who are applying for that position who are, like, doing really cool research on, like, email use in, like, Tunisia. Um, so the the kind of competition for what students love, I mean, that doesn't matter. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you could offer, like, a course on, like, the history of TMZ and, like, set a university uh, (laughs) on fire with the registration. No, I mean, like, my classes were always, like, super, like, waitlisted for crazy, just crazily waitlisted and... Kids love me. Students love me. (laughs) Give me a job. Well, and that's the thing that I miss about academia most is that I really love teaching, like, really like it. Really? Oh, yeah. You're the first person on the show who's ever said that. What? Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. Um, it's it's really energizing, and um, it keeps me hip and young and cool to, like, well, now I don't need that because everyone at BuzzFeed is 22. A yeah. kid. <laughs> but um, they, I don't know, they, like, it makes me want to think about the things that I should be thinking about. And I get, like, I get that, like like, nervous in my stomach feel, like, before I teach, which I know is, like, the way that I can tell, like, I love it. So now that you are read by, like, 10 million people, like, has that, has it, does that start feedback loop start to affect your writing? Like, no. 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 I think it would, you know, if I were still writing at the, at the hairpin, say, like, that community is so much smaller that you are, like, you, you read the comments. Like, I thought you were going to say smarter when you said st- smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like BuzzFeed, like, there are people who, get, like, lots of people who read BuzzFeed get it, obviously. Yeah. But then sometimes there are people who are like, why are you saying that Jennifer Lawrence isn't cool? Like, you just, you know, don't get it. But I just, the reach is too broad to feel like there is a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Um, to go back to, like, the, the academia thing. So, like, when I left, I mean, it was, it was a huge decision. It felt like the right decision. But I was super ashamed because it's a huge failure. We, or you feel like it's a huge failure. It seems like such a success to me. Even now <laughs> that you've told me it's a failure, I still consider it a success. Well, and the funny thing and that I had to, like, have people outside of academia tell me is that, like, it's somehow it's a success if you hodgepodge together, which people have to do because there's just not opportunities. You hodgepodge together, like, seven community class, community college classes that you're driving all over the city. You don't have health insurance. You're getting paid $2,000 a class. So you're, like, below poverty wage, but you're, like, I'm not a failure. Right. Right? Because I haven't left academia. And so I just had to, like, like fuck it and just, like, be liberated from any of that shame. But it took a while. At what point did you stop, like, sort of feeling the sting of the failure and start feeling the, like, um, sweet burn of page views? (laughs) Well, I think that when I announced that it was happening, so I did this big interview on the hairpin, that was somewhat bombastically but appropriately titled, like, Anne Helen Peterson is leaving academia for BuzzFeed. Yeah. I mean, it's appropriate, right? But yeah, it's good that's, publicity. It's a, a big headline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which also <laughs> happened to be released, like, the weekend of, like, the big media studies conference in which I was in attendance. Like, Whoa. it was released, like, the first day. Did you, like, drop, like, a smoke <laughs> bomb and, like, disappear from the stage? <laughs> Uh, I hid. I spent a lot of time hiding. Uh, but when I got just so, like, I got so many unsolicited emails of, like, this is awesome. This is how I've been feeling. Like, I needed someone to show that there are other options and yeah. that sort of thing. Did you ever think about, like, stepping over a different uh, line and, like, getting into publicity or getting into the gossip ministry? I mean, you you must know as much about this as many people who you work know, within the industry. Someone asked me the other day, they were like, hasn't like Jennifer Lawrence's people contacted you? Yeah. No, I've never had a publicist be like, can you do a seminar on like 
precedent so that we don't keep doing the same things over and over again. Yeah, um, they're not interested in no, that. No, not I at don't, all. I didn't. Even, I wasn't even thinking so much like in terms of like Jennifer Lawrence's right. publicist, but like I would be interested in hiring you if I worked for like TMZ. Like I, I feel like right. th- there is a circularity to to this gossip stuff, and there are some like lessons of the past or or even lore of the past right. that I think would be interesting. Well, people are terrified of like the PhD. When I had to make a resume to apply to BuzzFeed, you know, in academia, you have a CV, which is like 15 pages long. And the first thing is like dissertation title and like where you got your PhD. In 10 point font at the very bottom of my one sheet resume is like PhD. PhD, all lowercase. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think people, not just in journalism, but kind of across the board, are reticent to think like, Oh, here are some people with some marketable skills, in part because PhDs are really bad at marketing themselves in that way. Because until recently, until like the system became so broken that like it's clear that we are produ- there's so many out of work PhDs and it's a travesty. And like advisors are like, how can I advise these people? I'm basically telling them to go like to enter a life of poverty. <laughs> but I never had a seminar on, like, here's another, like, here's our other things that you could possibly do with your tremendous skill set that you have acquired. Did you at some point shift from being, like, freelance to, like, staff at BuzzFeed? No, I, so they hired me in March and with the knowledge that I would come in the middle of May. So I, like, gave my last final and then hopped on the plane the next day. And do you have, like, do you have a quota at BuzzFeed? Like, what's, like, what's your, what's... What's a daily or what's a weekly work cycle at BuzzFeed like? People that I've talked to now since I've moved to BuzzFeed are amazed that none of us have quotas. I mean, I think that people who do more of what's called like the buzz teamy, so more of the list stuff, they don't have like daily or weekly quotas. It's more like the overarching maxim is like be awesome. And yes, like if you produce things that only get 10,000 hits – you will get fired immediately. <laughs> you, and you only do that for six months. Yeah. Then maybe there will be a conversation. But like mine, when I first came in, I was like, I'm going to write a feature every two weeks. And they were like, slow down. <laughs> and Because I could. I could write a feature every two weeks. But the, what I've been encouraged to do is to try different things. So like the TMZ piece, like I'd never... I had to learn how to journalist to do that TMZ yeah. piece. What was, the, what was your experience of learning to journalize? Like? I was like, oh, I hate talking on the phone so much, like yeah. so many interviews. Yeah. And I just really had to push past that. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, did yeah. like did someone you were like, OK, I'm going to do a serious reported piece on TMZ. Uh, did you like have to like go up to someone and be like, how, did, how do you do that? Like, <laughs> well, what happened was those Bieber, those like Bieber tapes leaked. Gawker reported that like, yeah. so these Bieber tapes, ta- TMZ had had these tapes for everyone. This goes around on an email and like all these people are weighing in, like Jonah Peretti and like Mark Schiff's, like all these people are like, this, maybe this is extortion, blah, blah, blah. And I just like, Working on something else kind of haphazardly, like, actually, this has all this president, like, confidential magazine, like, kind of, like, <laughs> geeky email, and they're yeah. like, you're writing a, you're writing a piece. And yeah. Like, oh, okay. Which I'd already written an academic piece about TMC. Yeah. But I obviously hadn't had access to anyone because, like, if you call up and you say, I'm writing a piece, and I can, I'm an academic, and I'm going to write this piece, like, no one wants to talk to you. Right. Um, I mean, people do get access inside the industry, but it's it was much easier when I was like, I'm writing an investigative piece for BuzzFeed that's going to be like 8,000 words long and then people kind of it opened up for me that's what I'm curious does BuzzFeed open doors because I've heard like some like I think that some of the stuff is changing because like I people have been on the show who are like yeah like New Yorker you get a call back but like uh, Yale, but Gawker, you don't get a call back. You know that there yeah. is like a sort of a um, entrenched print media versus web. Uh, well, right. I don't know what the fuck well, we're calling this kind I mean, of media. Like, what is what is TMZ's opinion of getting covered by by BuzzFeed? Well, like, from what I understand, they were actually pretty psyched about the piece. Um, because I do in this TMZ piece, I'm like. They're the most important media organization of the last five years. Like, you know, even though it has kind of all these devious things that they do as well, I also am explaining how, like, they're pretty brilliant in a lot of other ways. But I, so when I write an email, it's kind of devious. I, I don't know if it's devious. It's honest. I'm like, 
I used to be a professor, and now I write. I do journalism for full time, and I'm writing this story for BuzzFeed about TMZ or about whatever. What's What's your like intention in saying that you used to be a professor? In that I email? think that it it really makes people, especially within the industry, it's somehow like they think that I know something, and that I'm going to write something that uh, makes sense and uh, is is fair, maybe. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of my trick is that I pair those things together. And I also, I link to like, a, like something like the Angelina Jolie piece that I wrote, which is about her publicity strategy. Like it shows that I have an understanding of how like publicity works and that sort of thing. I understand when you're talking about like the classic Hollywood system, you have that entire apartment full of books, but like <laughs> when you're trying to find out like, yeah, like how does TMZ work? Or mm-hmm. you're trying to find out like, how does like... Angelina's pub, like Jolie's publicists, like actually operate behind the scenes. Like, yeah, how, who, who do you call? Like, what, how, what's the research like for something like that? So interesting. Like Angelina, that piece on Jolie, I didn't talk to anyone. Like, I didn't talk to her publicist. So it was very much kind of straightforward, like analysis. And what I was looking at is just like the text. Like, here's how. In the months after Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were supposedly getting together after Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and there's all this, like, could have gone super, super wrong. Here's what images actually emerged. Like, they weren't speaking, they weren't offering comment, but look, here's them on, like, a global philanthropy tour, never appearing in the same shot together, but changing the conversation, the discourse from, like, oh, they're having sex to look at all of this good that they're doing. So, like, that, I mean, and that's classic academic. It's like a write-around in some ways, except it's, like, analysis. Right. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, like, we have a lot of people on the show who are are not particularly interested in celebrity journalism, but yet have performed it for financial compensation <laughs> various points in their life. So, I mean, you're kind of coming at it from, like, an opposite standpoint and saying, like, I'm actually really interested in this. Like, I'm not... Well. I'm not interested in the, the like the celebrity profile in its ridiculous banal form. I wrote this piece, um, this feature for the Believer in May called "The Banality of the Celebrity Profile," and it looks at the the incredible history of just how boring celebrity profiles were, and then how they were amazing in the '60s and '70s, yeah, and then how they've gone back to boring again. And I like it doesn't have to be boring. The problem is that when the magazine holds the journalist to the publicist demands, that's when it's horrible. Yeah. Well, I'm actually like, I get less into the like, like, are these celebrity profiles good question? (laughs) But on a deeper level, like, this is an entertainment industry, like journalism writing. It's it's still it's still part of the entertainment industry. The money is from entertainment. You're not getting like outside of like sort of nonprofit investigative journalism funds. It's an entertainment product and entertainment products are like for an audience. An audience kind of defines the terms at which they want it. And clearly the American audience, the number one thing they want is celebrities (laughs) like like journal writers and journalists may not be happy that that is like how people are wired. But we have like a hundred years of history to basically say that's pretty much what people want. Right. Well, and like the entire like the way that Vanity Fair stays in business is all based on that interest. That didn't even have a question at the end of it. But like, what? No, like, what's no, up I with mean, that? But Vanity Fair, like, they have the the banal celebrity profile that yeah. funds the rest of their excellent investigative journalism. Absolutely, and know? that's a that's a tried and true formula. I'm wondering, like, as someone who operates unshamefully in the celebrity realm like why is celebrity such a like timeless and indelibly entertaining thing and why are we so uncomfortable like why is that that like people whose job it is to entertain those people find that disdainful okay two parts so the stock answer on why we like celebrities is because like it's not i mean they're beautiful whatever like they are. They embody superlatives, and mm-hmm. so like the most beautiful, the most, uh, the the fastest, like whatever. But like the the beauty thing falls short because models are beautiful too, and we're not really interested in models. Yeah. So what it is is like we're interested in the image, right? So like all this like cluster of meanings that like a person comes to mean. Yeah. And that is always always a condensation of 
what like the society is obsessed not like obsessed with but also has anxiety about mm-hmm. so like the phrase is usually like ideologies under threat so a celebrity can either uphold those and be like this is what real masculinity looks like or can challenge them and so i think that's why you know even the relationships and that sort of thing like you you see in something like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's relationship a new kind of relationship that's being offered forward so of course you're going to be interested in it and part of it too is kind of like just age-old tropes like the fact that like Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie and uh, Jennifer Aniston is essentially a like person for person reworking of the love triangle between Debbie Reynolds Liz Taylor and Eddie Fisher like every the way that like one is framed as like this sexual menace like dark like all-consuming, like totally enveloping the man, and then the other one is this like all-American girl next door, and the the guy is just kind of stoop, like just kind of on the side. So in that way, like things replay themselves, and it's familiar. And but I also think that like gossip, this is where gossip becomes really important in celebrity, is gives people a way to talk about things that actually matter to them by mapping it onto celebrities. Mm-hmm. So like you can talk about how you feel about this new, like, the fact that someone's not getting married or having a baby out of wedlock or, like, getting divorced. Like, that's a way to project your own your own feelings about something in your own life onto a conversation about something that's seemingly has nothing to do with your life. Right. And I, I think in the context of, like, writers, you know, we pass through this sort of postmodern period where people wanted to deconstruct the, the celebrity profile yeah. and you have like the writer write arounds are definitely like yeah. part of that and kind of commenting on the deep artificiality of, of the setup yeah. and like now I think people don't want to do that because that's like now a, a journalistic cliche in a way yeah. to, to approach a story oh, like Alex that. Alex Papadimus did a really good one on Cameron Diaz and Grantland. Yeah, I, I, really it still, still plays for me. But yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of like maybe some of what people are reacting to and they're like, right. I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, right, right. not only can I not do it, like I can't even subvert it because that's like cliche yeah. now too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sort of interested in whether you see, like w- what the path forward you see there is and, and in terms of generating your own material. Well, like the, the other problem is that celebrities are, like the, the purpose historically of the celebrity profiles, it's like illuminating some part of that celebrity that they have not yet disclosed. Right. So whatever the soundbite is from the profile, you know, like when, like, Jennifer Aniston said that, like, there was a sensitivity chip missing in Brad Pitt. Like, there's always, you know, like, that one thing. With social media, that becomes, like, the false bottom. So if you do a profile of Kim Kardashian, like, everyone already knows everything about Kim Kardashian because her life is her brand. Right. Like, everything about her being known all the time. So you have to somehow take that profile and go deeper. And I think that's possible. But you have to be really savvy at it. You can't just be like, Kim Kardashian is beautiful. Right. <laughs> like, you have to be really mindful of, okay, so how can I get to something that actually tells me something new and illuminating about Kim Kardashian? And is that like is that your intention like when you do something like the Angelina Jolie piece is to write sort of a reaction not to the star but to the way that the star has yeah. been constructed that's yeah. a, that's a technique that's for talking like I don't even think the star is necessary right you know like someone would be like oh well can you get access to someone does it matter isn't it just as interesting that I do it without that star is this stuff changing or do you see this stuff as like a sort of a like gossip and celebrity sort of a static human condition? Oh, it's totally a static human condition. I think that it's accelerated and amplified like yep. just the like digitization both in terms of how we get our imagery and how fast it goes around. Like yep. so there's more of it, but the like the stories are just the same like over and over and over again. Do you think that you can keep writing about this forever or will you run out of stuff? I mean, in that Cool Girls article, I'm like, Clara Bow is like Carol Lombard is like early Jane Fonda, like pre Hanoi Jane, Jane Fonda is like Jennifer Lawrence. Like these are types yeah. and they reproduce themselves in slightly different manifestations. Ben Smith, editor in chief at BuzzFeed, like keeps telling me to like do something completely out of my comfort zone. And I don't know what that is. I mean, because to me, I like again. I'm not a good journalist in that I don't know how to pitch anything. Like I don't. I never had to like write a paragraph where I was like, "This is what I want to write about." So like in the pitch meetings, I'll be like, 
Montana. <laughs> and they'll be like, what about Montana? And I'll be like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> like for me, I just, I like to immerse myself in it. And then the story will, will there's something there. Like yeah. everything is interesting. Yeah. I just need to figure out what that is, but I don't know how to. Like, I mean, yeah. What else, like, what else are you interested in? Um, okay. We got Montana, celebrity. <laughs> I mean, I mean, now that you're doing this as a career, right? You must have thought, "Here's my, you know, here's my, here's the B plot." I mean, what's what is the B plot? Yeah. Uh, um. No, really, I haven't. Like, I mean, so like the next piece that I'm working on, which will be out by the time this is out, is on Tinder. I did this giant Tinder simulation and got like a thousand people to do it. And made them, like, write why they swiped on people and why they didn't. And I made all the Tinder profiles myself. Okay. So you did have done something outside your will. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's all about – but it's about the same things that I'm always obsessed with, which is identity. Yeah. So, like, this – the thing that I found from this Tinder piece is that it's not about race. Like, everyone thinks, like, oh, I'm secretly racist and, like, feels bad about it with Tinder. It's all about class. And you're getting that not from, like, a numerical standpoint but from their statements about why they swiped. So I have both the statistics – about why, about who they swiped on, right? Yep. But then also the statistics, I made them, when they looked at the picture, I'd be like, what class do you think this person is? What education level do you think this person is? What race do you think this person is? And so you have people that are ostensibly entirely the same and that they actually even say like similar things about, but it's the class that makes them swipe no. How do you read class into a uh, t- Tinder profile? Well, this is where like it's media studies because it's all about semiotics. It's like how you pick up on these small, tiny things in a profile right. and think that that person is of a different class. Because the thing that people say in their comments isn't that person is poor. Yeah. It's I don't think we would have anything in common. I don't think we would relate well. I don't know what we would talk about. When you're working on a piece like this yeah. and you're like doing a simulation with a thousand people and yeah. like putting a lot of work and um, the person at the next desk is doing like a like, like um, what, like what animal is your date tonight kind of list. That was, was not even a good fake I Like I, I sit next yeah. to Isaac Fitzgerald, who's like the BuzzFeed books editor. So he's always doing something. Oh, yeah. But you, you know, you're on your way to the bathroom. Right. And someone's like constructing like what 80s right. movie. um uh, says about like yeah. your mom. I know people from the outside feel threatened by that. Like right. I know people who don't work at BuzzFeed or or, or these yeah. kind of publications are like, "What the fuck?" Like I like, I like went in the trenches and you know I like worked my ass off to get here and like I'm competing with listicles. The New York Times has a crossword puzzle and a Sudoku and cartoons and you know what I mean. Yeah. Like there are fun and it has a style section and it has you know like nostalgic things and it has the vows section. Like there yeah. are there's something for everyone. Yeah. For like your very very dense like takes all of your Sunday morning brain power and like you're hungover. I'm just gonna play the crossword and like to fill in two things brain power. I think that. One of the great things about BuzzFeed as a homepage is that someone can go there and they see, like, oh, I want to click on this, like, 29 cats who can't even right now. But then they get led in the same way that, like, actually reading the New York Times, you, you'll you maybe click on a news story or a business story or something like that that they yep. wouldn't have otherwise seen. And so it's actually, I think, facilitating instead of siloing that sort of, like, this, the internet is only fun or only serious. Right. I think that the operative difference there is that no one said, you know, the New Yorker, where they have those like funny cartoons about how people don't know how to use iPhones, right? <laughs> right. Well, and, and people I mean, say that BuzzFeed is that place where the lists are, you know? Right. Well, and that conversation is slowly changing. You know, yeah. every time that someone tweets a piece of mine with the beginning, who knew that BuzzFeed did serious journalism is the last time they can tweet that. Right. It's kind of the like, graphic novels, they're not just for kids anymore. <laughs> then, <laughs> but then, so at some point, like, you can't say that anymore because right. you know. Right. And it must be somewhat nice for you to have, like, someone entering the site on, like, a list oh, yeah. and seeing, like, your your piece on the celebrity leaks in the right. sidebar. It's like um, money people would love that like right. million link generation. Well, and I think of it as like, 
I don't know if this is too highfalutin, but I like I do think of it as progressive because my goal has always been that these ideas that I have had that I have like these yeah. that I've spent all of this time learning in the ivory tower yeah. that they shouldn't be locked there. Yeah. Because like if I were to stay in academia and all this like the books if I wrote a book it would only be in academic libraries and if I like wrote an article like it would be behind a paywall. Yeah. Like not just a pay like these aren't even like the paywalls of like the New York Times we're talking like a giant moat to get yes. to these articles, right? Yes. And so by writing for other places I was like I want to make these accessible but the hairpin like I and the all like the you know those sites are like you know my they're my go-to places, but it's still a relatively circumscribed audience of people who go are led to those sites. Yes. But for BuzzFeed, like people want to think intelligently about celebrity. Right. Maybe not 100% of people, but a lot of people. And so for them to like realize, like, here's a way that I can think about this thing in a way that's engaging, like that, like I want to do that. I want to make that accessible for as many people who will read it. And that is much easier at a place like BuzzFeed. Like, the energy there is out of this world. I mean, I've just... Maybe it's just being in academia for so long where, like, everyone is sad, (laughs) (laughs) angry, and, like... I mean, in part because there is a poverty mentality and because, I mean, because academia is broken. Of course, people feel broken, too. Yes. But being at a place where there's plenty and people are excited about the freedom that they have to create things it's super invigorating i have one more question about that which is in shifting from doing like a dissertation your frequency is going way up i mean you you wanted to do one every two weeks maybe slowing the roll a little bit there oh yeah no i do like one a month the so like let's say the celebrity new leaks you know like a gazillion people are going to do it and maybe you don't care like what they have to say Mm -hmm. but one thing i would know i know just about that sort of spectrum of writing is a lot of it's going to be very knee-jerk and reactionary and it's going to be intended for the day it comes out. When you're thinking about writing something like that, how do you sort of balance the like news cycle versus the eternal question of fame? Is it important to you that your articles be readable years down the line? Yes. There was an interesting thing in the alt. Gosh, we're talking about the alt so much. I know. This is, well, they are. They, so this is uh, sponsored, sponsored branded <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> but there was John Herman wrote a thing today about like the hot take. Yeah. And kind of disparaging it, but also like just its place in the news cycle and how yep. there's always like how you know there's a hundred hot takes and then like three of them become ideas essentially. The right. ones that endure become ideas, and I think that. Part of my goal in doing context and like historicizing things, which is a word that I'm supposed to not use because yeah. it makes me sound too academic, but yeah. that's what I'm doing. You add history that is called historicizing. That that um, usage is problematized. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but by doing that, it makes it so that it's less uh, ephemeral. So it seems like it can be. It, it's taking kind of putting tethers into history that makes it more grounded. I mean, it's actually interesting. I, I hadn't thought of this, but like when we were talking about academia, we were talking about how like everyone's already like um, staked out all the campsites, so yeah. you have to like do like the yeah. wacky campsite yeah, like, next to the porta potty um, to get a new <laughs> so idea. And that's sort of the same problem as the hot take. Like yeah. the hot take is like, well, I don't want. I got a z- I got a zag here. Yeah, everyone's gonna zig. Yeah, like if I feel like I'm not being influenced by what other people are saying and just trying to say what you know what my argument is, then it feels like it's less trying to wedge myself into that nasty-smelling campsite. <laughs> I feel like I want to keep bringing back the <laughs> campsite by the porta potty as a metaphor for various things with journalism now. <laughs> I'm from the West. I yeah. totally understand. Um, <laughs> and, you've done, and, and you've done pieces additionally for, like, for VQR and for Believer. Before. Before, yes. Yeah. What I mean, what's, like, the editing process, like, between, like, like a BuzzFeed piece and like a Believer piece. I so in academia, like you don't really have editing. You know, when a piece goes out for peer review, yeah, it's like it's like the a most, lot of most times. Negative I have I've had possible. a I have had a few very excellent peer reviewers, but the majority are like other academics performatively shitting on your piece, and it's anonymous. So that's you know it's part it facilitates that process, and. 
I just love editors. It's just <laughs> great. Oh my gosh, being edited is so great. Like I think that sometimes people like I, a lot of people have fraught relationships with editors, but me, I'm like. That's awesome. That idea that you have to do that, that is great. And like you're gonna make it that I so I don't have typos, also great. So at at BuzzFeed, you know, especially with this TMZ piece, like it was fact checked at Kingdom Come. Like at some point, so I write everything in Google Docs. There were twenty people in that document because we had like lawyers and fact checkers and editors and people who specialize in entertainment and all sorts of things. So it was thoroughly, thoroughly processed. And it's a better piece for it. And is it like is it different when you're doing kind of like a literary like believer VQR kind of piece? Does that get pushed in different directions? You know, it's I, I would say it's very similar. I mean, part like Steve, who's my primary editor now, like, you know, he's an old school magazine editor. Yes. So he edits very similarly to like how I was edited at the Believer and that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. And are you gonna do like a book tour or anything? I for- am. There's a book release party. Yes. At Powerhouse Books yes. on my book release date, September 30th, which is also Lena Dunham's book release date. But I am the counter-programming. <laughs> and they're not at the same venue. No, no, no. That would be uncomfortable. No. And then I'm, you know, I'm going to uh, Texas. Awesome. I'm going to Seattle. I'm going to Boston. I'm going to a couple of places. Just, yeah. I'm glad I asked you that because um, having you like list out your tour dates made me feel like we're doing a real radio show here. <laughs> like you're like a comedian on like my Zoo Crew show. Yes. You called and, me up at 6 a.m. Yeah, you're at your hotel, hungover, and I'm like about to blow a kazoo to to signal that we're about to do traffic. <laughs> so that seems like as good a place to end as any. Thank you, Anne Helen Peterson. Thank you so much. The book is Scandals of Classic Hollywood, September 30th. Uh, you can check out most of these pieces at BuzzFeed, and we'll put them in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. That interview was done by Aaron Lammer, who is uh, home with a bad back. Aaron, if you are listening to this, may you be prone and pain-free. Uh, I feel terrible. I feel terrible, man. His, uh, his back is really giving this man some trouble. Uh, if you want to send him well wishes, you should. Tell him to feel better. He's at Aaron Lammer on Twitter. Uh, the other host of this show is Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to Anne Helen Peterson for coming in. Her new book is called Scandals of Classic Hollywood. It involves scandals and classic Hollywood. Uh, I don't know how you could not like that. Go pick up a copy. Uh, and thanks also to our sponsors, Bonobos, B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. Use the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 20% off. Tell them my mom sent you. Uh, thanks also to Tiny Letter and to our friends at EA Sports. They've already given away a free Xbox One to a listener of Longform, uh, but they want to do more. So send us an email, editors at longform.org, put EA Sports FIFA 15 in the subject line, and we will send you a free copy. If you're one of the first 10 people, we'll send you a free copy of EA Sports FIFA 15. Uh, the new game is great. We've been playing it incessantly in the office. I have a suspicion that uh, all the losing he's been doing, the stress from the losses is what caused Aaron's back pain this time. We'll see you next week. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh yeah. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.